Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 14 through 16. And the message is entitled, The Purpose of the Gifted Men. And this is part 2. Now, in our last study, we saw the purpose of the gifted men given to the church by Jesus Christ. And we stated that there were six things that describe the purpose of these gifted men. We found that in Ephesians 11 through 13. First, in verse 11, they were for the benefit of the body of Christ. Then in verse 12, for the equipping of the body of Christ. And in verse 13, for the maturing of the body of Christ. Now, we want to look at the last three important purposes of the gifted men. Found in verse 14 through 16. Which is also three and they're as follows. Verse 14, for the protection against false teaching. Secondly, in verse 15, for the personal witness of truth. And thirdly, for the proper perspective in relationship to Christ. Verse 16. Paul begins by giving us the protection against false teaching. Notice the Apostle Paul here declared the purposeful outcome of a mature Christian that he or she is uh, not to be spiritually deceived. That is a top priority in the scriptures. It says that we shall no longer be children. The introduction here is a purpose clause by the word that, which is the word hina, in order that or so that. So there's a purpose behind it, and it's called a purpose clause when you find the word hina. Now, the metaphor notice is that of a child. The prohibition is in the negative, that we should no longer. The implication is that as a Christian, not to grow in the word of God and mature, then we can be deceived. If a Christian cannot be deceived, there is no need of writing the New Testament and warning. The epistle would have not have to been written. All warnings are to believers. The non-believer is lost and deceived already. The implication being that we are able to escape deception, being mature in Christ. We're going to see the contrast between the child, the infant, in contrast to the mature saint, child and adult. And the tense here is the present active. So it's to be ongoing all the time, not to be uh, no longer like children. Um, The person, again, is a child and presented in the um, defenselessness in a very dangerous position here when you think of an infant. That's what the word here means, simply an infant, one untaught unskillful, one unable to communicate or defend himself proficiently in whether in word or in deed. Um, when we see a child left alone in a car, we are, we're shocked. How could they leave them there? Or they're just standing in the middle of the street. What parent left them there? Because we automatically think of a child, one defenseless. Now, the word stands in sharp contrast, as I said, to the mature believer in the previous verse, verse 13. The spiritual infant is able to be deceived easier than a mature believer. 
but it does not mean that a believer who is mature cannot be deceived. Um, when I first came to the Lord, uh, we used to go out to the concerts at Costa Mesa, and they'd have them on Friday night, and different individuals, Jimmy Kempner, and then others uh, took over after we left. But um, the second guy that took over, he got deceived. And he had been walking Christ for many, many years. I've known other people that have been deceived. So it doesn't mean that you cannot get deceived if you're mature. It just means that you have a better chance of not being deceived, right? As long as you abide in Christ in the Word of God and you examine everything, as we'll see. Um, the believer recently born again is a legitimate spiritual infant, though. In 1 Peter 2, 2, desiring the unadulterated word of, the, of milk, word of God. So there's a legitimate time. You bring a baby home, you don't bring him with teeth, and he doesn't want run in. He's a baby, okay? Spiritually speaking, the metaphor here again. It's a legitimate state, but you shouldn't remain there. Um, there are spiritual infants in an arrested state by their own disobedience to not grow or to mature in Christ, unable to discern truth and error regarding the scriptures, as you know. So Paul calls them carnal as babes in Christ in 1 Corinthians 3, 1. Now, they were carnal, and yet they had all the gifts of the Spirit. So gifts are never a mark of spirituality or maturity. You can have the gifts and be 100% beef. It means no, it makes no difference. At other times, spiritual infanthood and immaturity is the fault of the pastors because they don't teach the flock of God. All they do is preach and beat the flock of God. They beat them and they fleece them rather than teach them. So it can be one way or the other, by the individual choice of refusing to grow or by the pastor who does not teach the word of God. Now notice... The Apostle Paul declared the measure of deception in an interesting and very picturesque way here in verse 14. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Paul portrays the instability of the person about doctrine by other metaphors now. The phrase tossed to and fro is a nautical term. It's meaning to be tossed by the waves. So you might think of a ship out there being thrown all around. The root word is use of the raging water Jesus rebuked in Luke 8.24. Wind be muzzled, literally. The word is also used to depict a man who doubts being like the waves driven to and fro in James 1.6. The picture is of drifting off course from the faith with no control. Just like a stranger can come to a child, hey, listen, come here, your mommy wants you, come with me. You can't connect the dots, right? You tell your kid, never go into anybody's house, never get into a car. Because you know they're not grown up enough to think properly or mature enough to think through those things, right? Drifting off course, no control, vulnerable to accept anything, indecisive about everything, and in danger of rejecting truth 
about everything. You ever meet people like that? You talk, start talking to them about Christian doctrine or different things, and we'll get into that a little bit. And they just say, oh, I, I, it doesn't matter. Just, you know, they're just, they accept anything and everything. They're, they're just whatever. Just a tossed salad. Notice Paul portrays the confession. Or I'm sorry, the confusion of the person here about doctrine. The phrase carried about has the idea of swinging about violently in circles, feeling dizzy and confused, unable to discern proper direction. Now, as I've gotten older, I can still go on rides that go up and down, but not this way. Oh, no. Get real dizzy. (laughs) This is the word. The word is used for a spinning top. Carried about every wind. The word wind depicts violent and tempestuous air, unable to defend oneself. The wind is unstable and destructive in its nature. Depicting a person being swept and led away from the faith. This is the focus. This is the key that he's addressing regarding this infant. That's why the purpose of the church is to perfect the saints in verse 11, right? For the work of the ministry, on and so forth that we've seen. Now notice the problem is doctrine. Didascalia. False teaching that depicts all things that are opposed to the truth of the gospel in order to deceive. That's the goal. The measure is every means all, every, and any. The warning is in the numerous teachings that are not of the truth, but lies that will damn people to hell. The accountability, the responsibility that men will have to face God for by their deception of those who trusted them regarding spiritual truth, is severe in Scripture. The new and sensational movement that offers the miraculous as credentials for genuineness or new and added revelation based on experience that's all around the church today, ripping things out of context, the latest craving, the greatest and latest thing that everybody's flocking to. Winds of doctrine. They come and they go. A postmodern movement of the emergent church that denies the inerrancy and infallibility of the scriptures. And the impossibility of being able to learn any objective truth from the Bible. My Lord, are you kidding me? So they don't have studies. They don't teach. They just dialogue. They have talks. They have campuses, not church. Really. And everybody puts all their two cents in and walk away with no objective truth. And just, you know, what can be sure of what it really means? Really? 
Why did God tell me to study and to obey? If I can't learn any objective truth, then the command to study and to obey and that there's consequences is really silly, isn't it? Hebrews 13.9 says, Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Jude verse 12 says, They are spots, clouds, carried about with the winds about these false teachers. Notice, the Apostle Paul declared also the manner and the means of deception by very vivid imagery. At the end of 14, by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. He just keeps piling up these descriptive adjectives. <laughs> these guys are bad news. The manner is clearly stated by trickery of men. The word trickery, it comes from the word cube or die. The idea is a dice, holding two sets of dice and playing by fraud to win. So the guy is holding two different sets of dice. One is loaded <laughs> to deceive fraudulently. They twist the truth to lead astray people. They disguise the lie by, in order to lead people astray. They are helplessly deceived and drift. By the way, this is the only time the word appears in this form in the New Testament, only this time. The meaning is twofold, clearly stated. Listen. First, by cunning craftiness, which means treacherous deceit, depicting character of being wise concerning evil. Do you realize there's people that are just masters at evil? They're very wise at evil, very astute, many stratagems. We're going to find that word in the warfare with Satan. The word is used by Jesus to depict the treachery of the Pharisees in Luke twenty twenty three. The word is used by Paul for the treacherous deception of the serpent towards Eve in Second Corinthians eleven three. Now, simple question. You don't have to be a theologian. Some Christians say you cannot be deceived. All right, let's go back to the first rule of mention of truth and deception, the garden. Adam and Eve weren't deceived? Are you telling me they weren't Christians? <laughs> they brought death to the world. And they were in a state that you and I will never be in. We have sin nature, they didn't. I don't know where Christians get their theology. They must be reading another Bible.
Notice second. Not only here. Of cunning craftiness. But deceitful. Plotting. Methodia. Which means to use every method. Every device. Systematically. To figure out how to. Teach the air to deceive and to lead astray. Wow. The article is present. The air or deceit. They are deliberate, patient, and vigilant, looking to lay out traps to deceive and lead astray spiritual infants. And he says, don't be like that you make sure that when you're born against a legitimate state now keep growing so you don't remain in that state the old king james says they lie and wait to deceive i like that because it gives you the picture of treachery we're just waiting for the right time to assault or to kill or to steal or to whatever you're going to do Scriptures tell us they will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived in 2 Timothy 3.13. They speak evil of things they do not understand, 2 Peter 2.12 says. And without any fear of God. They merchandise the people of God. They take advantage of women. They take advantage of people. They, kids, whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, the way they used to train bank tellers, I don't know if they still do it, in order to depict the counterfeit bill was by having that teller only handle the genuine bills. And when you handle genuine bills every day, every day, when the counterfeit comes across you, you will know it. Simple. You and I don't have to know and study all the lies. We should be aware of the latest craze and phase and fallacy as we're moving through life but i don't have to know all the deception or all the errors when they're presented if i know the word of god i can shoot holes through it you see if you have a ministry apologetical ministry then you're gonna have to study those different things but if 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 you're not called to that put your time in studying the word of god you'll be able to you know take the mask off anything that comes across your life Because you know the genuine. There is the false teaching of positive confession of health and wealth that started way back in the mid-70s. I thought it was just a phase. It's still going. It mutates in different forms. The false teaching of imagery or inner, inner healing where you imagine Jesus if you're sick and he comes and he touches you and heals you and you just create your own reality. The teaching that you are little gods, which is a progressive revelation of the positive confession with Pixie and Dixie and Channel 40. Um, The same deception Adam and Eve fell for by Satan in the garden. You will become gods just like him. Wow. The teaching of being drunk in the spirit. Christians gather around and they worship God and they just get drunk in the spirit and they 
dogpile all over each other, men and women. How convenient. Man, if I was in the world, I want to go to church like that. The doctrine of laughing in the spirit uncontrollably. Like hyenas. Flying around like birds. Nonsense. The false teaching of being slain in the spirit. Emotionalism. Theatrics. I only know of one pair that was slain in the spirit, and that's Ananias and Sapphira, and they never got up. Why would God, quote, quote, make you fall down so that you can wiggle around like a worm and everybody's looking at you rather than giving God glory? And if it is God, why do people have to catch you? If God knocks you down, he's not going to crack your skull, is he? Why do men stand in front with, with, with a cloth so they can put them over ladies that have skirts? You think God's going to knock you down so you can expose yourself? They're all theatrics. It's all carnality. Hmm. People love it. It's like going to the circus. The false teaching of Oris by the late John Wimber of the Vineyard Movement. Signs and wonders for evangelism. Even teaching that they could raise the dead. Hmm. He used to teach at Fuller Cemetery over here. With Wagner, the head of the department of, who took the chair for McGavern of church growth. The false teaching of contemplative prayer through labyrinths and prayer stations tapping into demons. APU had a labyrinth on, on the grounds. Hmm. The entire emergent church movement is its postmodern varieties of false teaching come from denying that objective truth cannot be sought and found in the Bible. False teachers will always target young believers, not grounded and rooted in the word, always. Listen to Second Timothy 4, 2 through 4. Preach the word, be ready, in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their desires, because they have itchy ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside the fables. Those are Christians. Now, if you're Calvinists, you would say they were never born again. If they weren't born again, then they're not being deceived. They're dead in trespasses and sins. They're lost. Right? So, 
the resulting purpose of the gifted men is for the protection against false teaching. Some of you have been with us a long, long time and you've seen a lot of the junk that comes and goes and you stand firm because you're grounded in the word of God. You don't just take out your sword, your Bible, say, boy, this Bible is power. You use it. Now, you don't have to defend the lion, Spurgeon said. Just open the gate. Let him out. The word of God. Notice, secondly, it's for personal witness of truth. Verse 15. The apostle Paul declared the natural result of the spiritually mature believer being a witness of the truth against deception. But speaking the truth in love. So Paul pointed out that a believer has the ability to oppose and confront deceptive teaching. We don't get mad. We don't consider winning an argument or putting a notch in my belt. We just share the truth. If people want to believe it, fine. If they don't, we continue to pray for them. The word bud marks a sharp contrast, conjunction. Rather than allowing oneself to be deceived, the believer speaks up. Rather than remaining silent, the believer exposes the false teaching. People don't like that today. Politically correctness has destroyed our nation and the church. The church is parallel to the world. The new deceived church. Both of them, the progressive liberals and the liberal Christian, have a new vocabulary. They redefine terms. They have their new worker ants. <laughs> Amazing. The believer is to speak the truth notice. The word truth literally means truthing, living and doing in defense of the truth. A part of simple present active. This is what we're to be doing all the time. Not going out looking for them, but when they come across our lives, when, they, when we confront them, when they ask us questions. The word appears only one other time in the New Testament. Galatians 4.16, listen. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? There's the word. The Galatians were being deceived. I marvel that you are so soon removed from the gospel. But even if I or, or another one or even an angel preached to you another gospel, heteros, of a different kind, let him be anathema, the strongest word, damnation in the Greek. He says it twice. Wow. Christians reveal the truth opposed to the lie, regardless of personal cost. In word and deed, knowing that all are blind and lost in sin and in error. For Jesus said, you shall be witnesses unto me in Acts 1.8. He sees us. He sees our life. Scripture says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. He bought them. Now, if you're a true Calvinist, you don't believe Christ bought everybody. Only the chosen frozen. <laughs> Here he says he bought them. 
So either either they're born again and, and, and deceived or they're false teachers, one of the two. It's real simple. Notice Paul points out that the motive of a believer is love. The word love is agape. It refers to God's divine love. The love is not based upon emotional, mental love, phileo. That comes and goes, and we usually make wrong decisions when it's based on that. The love is not based on sexual love, eros. That's very self-seeking. And the love is not based on family love. Though all those three will blossom through the love of God, agape. If you take those three loves, the emotional, the sexual, and the family love, and you are not being filled with the love of God, you will corrupt those three loves and misuse them and abuse them. But if you're filled with the love of God, then these three loves will blossom and flourish to the fullest. The love is for the lost and deceived about the gospel. This love is an outgrowth of love for God. In the truth of God, not self or lies. This love is for God over man. Confrontation is a mark of love. Willing to tell the truth about God's sin and the need of repentance. Whether they are lost or deceived or being deceived. The motive is love. You as a parent, you will warn your children. If you don't have kids, you will. And you will warn them, not because you hate them. You will warn them because you love them. You want the best for them. You don't want them to err where you erred. You don't want them to make a wrong mistake that will cost them for life. Because you've been around the block a couple of times. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the benefit of a spiritually mature believer being a witness of the truth Against deception. Verse 15. May grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. Paul pointed out this results in ongoing spiritual growth in all things. So as you are living out that truth and confronting fallacy and error. You you in turn are growing. The idea is to retain and remain grounded and rooted, increasing in the word in order to be stable and mature. I don't care how long you walk with God. You just stay away from the study of the word of God. You just stay away from reading your Bible. You stay away from praying. You stay away from coming to church. You stay away from serving for a while. You will get yourself in big trouble. It won't take long. You're a parent once again. When it's noisy in the house, it's a blessing. When it's quiet, you know something's wrong. (laughs) Kids are up to something. Notice this is in all things. Any and every area of spiritual life. Not only in the areas of my strength or weaknesses, but both. A strength is a double weakness if I trust it. Because I feel that I can't fall. Patience, anger, 
prayer, forgiveness, the word, service, my relationship with my wife, or if I'm a woman, with my husband, our children, our friends, the hopes I have, the vision I have. Got to grow constantly in the word. The surest way to measure spiritual growth is if you live what you speak in truth. That is an absolute way of growing. Notice Paul pointed out this growth in him who is the head. Another metaphor. This points back to verse 13. The growth of the believer in the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, the head of the church. And it goes back to chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, when we started the epistle. Jesus alone is the measuring rod and the image we are to be growing in and towards in order to be conformed into his image and likeness. In fact, John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease, John 3 you know, our American society is a perfect example of um, infantile immaturity. As they are being deceived by the false teachings of educators and political leaders. Telling the people that we evolved. There is no God. That there are no absolutes to right or wrong. That marriage is not limited to a man and a woman. That global warming is causing terrorism. That wealth distribution is a way to prosper an economy. And that we cannot defeat ISIS by killing them. Morons. The world quacks to their song. They parrot it. They repeat it. To their own demise. One of the most important ways to assess spiritual growth is in knowing the word of God. It's real simple. Are you able to defend the doctrine of the Trinity against those who deny the Trinity? If they confronted you. Can you prove them that Jesus Christ is God? In the beginning was the word. The word was of God. And God was the word. John 1.1. 1, 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh. We beheld his glory. He's the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. And I believe First John 5.20. He declares Jesus is God. One of many, many times. The visible form of the invisible God. Colossians 1.16. <laughs> Philippians 2. Five on down, being in the form of God, he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but he emptied himself, made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a servant and humbled himself, obedient even to the death of the cross. And for that reason, the name has been given to him above every other name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Wow. Being in the form of God is an antecedent condition of Philippians there. It means he was God when he, before he came, he was God when he was here, and he's God when he left. And he's still God. <laughs> wow. How about the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Can you expose the lie that they're not for today, that they cease with the first century church? Can you prove that from Scripture? What about refuting the denials that 
that um, you can be born again and forgiven for all your sins you ever did. Can you prove that from Scripture? Would you be able to disprove a person's teaching that there is no rapture? Or that the church didn't go through the tribulation? Could you show them that they're wrong? Can you prove to a person that denies that people not born again will be separated from God and suffer punishment for all eternity? People are adamantly opposed to that. Oh, no, no, that's not the type of God. No, if that's the type of God, I don't want to do with him. You think you're hurting his feelings? You think you impress him? We are so arrogant. I'm shocked that God doesn't just fry us at times. <laughs> the things that people say to God. Just amazing. I said many of those things myself when I was in the world. Acts 17.11 puts it this way. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, the Bereans, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether the things were so. Acts 17.11, remember that. Anything that you hear, whether it be from this pulpit or anywhere else, you should say, all right, check that out. I'm going to verify that through the word of God. If you don't check me, then you're a candidate for deception. It's just that simple. First Peter three fifteen through 16 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that lies or is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So Peter is saying, when you're accused falsely, live in such a way to prove them wrong. And give them an answer. Now the other way to mark spiritual growth is as we yield to the love of God. Knowledge and love. The tone of our words communicate and reveal an attitude of humility or superiority. One of the two. Humility or pride. You can be confident, but humble. You can be proudful. And not communicate anything but arrogance. All of us have that potential. Often it's not so much what we say, it's how we say it. When I do funerals, funerals are, are an interesting place because it's the greatest opportunity to preach to people who will never hear the gospel. But you can't do it as you would do in evangelism. <laughs> I really say nothing different than an evangelist does or when I teach except the tone of the delivery is the most important. You must share the word of God in funerals with a broken heart and love from the Lord to plead for those who are so lost and blind. Because it may be the last time they hear the gospel. There is a time and place for strong confrontation at times, yet it still must be motivated by God's love. 
Proverbs 27, 5 through 6 puts it this way. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful the wounds of a friend, but deceitful, or the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. So once again, if you're a parent and you love your children, you confront them. If you're always hanging around people that say you're the greatest thing since ice cream, I would suggest you get some new friends. They're not really your friends. A true friend's going to tell you what a jerk you are when you're a jerk. That's the way it is. The love of God will always remind you, as well as I, how little we deserve his love. That's why we must be motivated by God's love. So when I minister the gospel or minister to you or anyone else, I am doing it not from a position of superiority, but I'm doing it from one who is a debtor to Christ. I don't deserve what God has given me. So when I minister to you or anyone else, I have to remember that. Ephesians 4.29 says, uh, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Grace is unmerited favor, undeserved. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Colossians 4, 5, and 6. The resulting purpose of the gifted men is for personal witness of truth. Every generation, there's no exception. Every Christian. Notice thirdly, you have here for proper perspective and relationship to Christ. Verse 16. The Apostle Paul declared the reason for spiritual growth of the believer is because of their relationship to Christ. From whom the whole body join and knit together by what every joint supplies. The statement looks back to verse 15. The personal pronoun whom refers to the head Christ and it's emphatic in the Greek. He is the focus, not the body. The head is. Now, we talked about children. Children, their heads are big in proportion to their bodies. That's why if you sit them and they go forward too much, boom, boom, they'll topple over. You know, they got a big old watermelon head. And then as they grow, their bodies grow in proportion and they get more heavy on the bottom and the top. The statement looks back there and the personal pronoun again, the emphasis is Christ. The head of the church. The one who orders and controls the body of the church, the corresponding metaphor to the head, the body of Christ, the church. The one who is the Christ, the anointed Messiah. Indicating here deity, the one who became incarnate, glorified now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Notice the statement includes every believer. Jesus is responsible for the constant, ongoing, organic unity. And when I mean organic, I'm not talking about food. 
The church is an organism, not an organization. He has to the church daily such as should be saved. It is his church. It's not his campus. Today they're changing a lot. Well, we have one. We, we have two campuses. Huh? You going to college or what? They're called church. His church. He's the one responsible for this organic unity by the Holy Spirit and growth of the body of the church. The whole body. He dealt with that from chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. The unity by the Holy Spirit. The head does not grow, but the body grows. The whole body reveals the oneness of the body in relationship to the head, while the members are many and diverse. He told us that in chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. Notice the whole body is interrelated, affecting one another by the phrase, join and knit together, which means to cause to coalesce, unite, and frame together, compacted. The phrase is a medical term. One for supporting ligaments that join your wrist, your hand, your elbows. That's the medical term. So this way you can function. This way they can coordinate. Everything can be smooth. The tense is a participle present middle voice. The middle voice always indicates you are the person that's involved in bringing it about. We know the source is Christ, but you are participant. It doesn't happen automatically. You and I must obey. You and I must be involved in this. Yielding. The whole body is interdependent. Needing one another. So interrelated, we affect one another. Interdependent, we need one another. By the phrase, what every joint supplies... It refers to the benefit of each part once again of the body. Colossians 2.19 says much the same thing. If you read Colossians and Ephesians, they're almost, almost the same in topics, but the focus is a little different. They were written at the same time. Each making use of the measure of the grace, their gift, their function according to their calling in the body as we've seen. My gift, my measure of grace and the gifts and the calling are for you, not for me. And your gift, your your calling is not for you, but for the rest of us. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the efficiency of the spiritual growth of the body and that it's related to the dependence and yielding of each member to Christ. According to the effect of working by which every part does its share. The portion of each person is endowed by the sovereign grace of God. The word according means down from. The idea being the capacity is not their own. The portion endowed is more than sufficient to accomplish the work by the very nature of the divine enabling. The phrase effective working means operative power that is being extended and influencing in a beneficial way. The head Christ and the body being one, orderly and effective. 
The head gives the commands. Not the hand. Not the foot. Not the spleen. The portion has to be cultivated and yielded to be true to one's calling and gifts. It does not happen automatically. And so the word share there means every member does his or her part. This again is the evidence of growth. Thinking of the other to benefit the other, the whole body of Christ, not yourself. Notice last, the apostle declare his activity of the body and turn results in more growth of the whole body. He says, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So the Christ-centeredness of each believer is the key for growth and effectiveness in the body. Self-centeredness looks out for oneself. Self-centeredness limits oneself. Our whole culture began with low self-esteem in the early 70s. Look where we're at now. We went from low self-esteem to entitlement. We went from believing that we don't like ourselves to saying, you need to give me something. Wow. One step at a time. Listen to Ephesians 2.22. In whom you also are being built up together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Ephesians 3.7. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. 5.18. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. It's God's Spirit working through us. Six, Ephesians 6, 10, 11. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles and stratagems of the devil. No one can boast in glory, but only in Christ. And then notice the mutual concern of the body for each other is the mark of being spiritually mature in Christ. The motive of every member is for the edifying of itself in love. You know the word edifying simply means to act for another, to promote another in the growth of Christ in the context here by reckoning one self dead. Reckoning the old man you find in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 all the way to the end of chapter 8 verse 39. That's the section called reckoning the old man dead. So you walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. You have two natures. The mark of carnality is concern with edifying oneself. Me, myself, and I, the trinity of darkness. The motive, once again, is stated. Agape. God's love. The purest of all motives. God's agape love. Twenty times God's love appears in this epistle in its various forms. Agapao, agape, different forms. Notice Paul did not sacrifice or compromise doctrine 
for the sake of love. But both are needed. Today, Christians and churches and pastors are sacrificing doctrine for the sake of loving one another. No. No, you don't do that. Doctrine keeps you on compass and of course. Love is the motive behind it. You remove doctrine, that love becomes corrupt and perverted and treacherous towards Christ. Doctrine is the content of truth that we believe and love is the motive that communicates and protects doctrine. As every member of our body is needed in response to the head, so the body of Christ is needed as Christ works through the body. He who is the head. He directs, he guides. He imparts. He chastens, he reproves. He disciplines. He heals. He does as he wills. What a great privilege we have had here in Calvary Chapel the last 35 years to see many of you grow in Christ Jesus from spiritual infants to mature believers in God and in Christ. Amazing. What a well-coordinated body I have witnessed and many of us have witnessed in the outreaches, the medical outreaches, different things we do. Everybody jumps in. Everybody grows. Everybody's there serving. But maturity, many of you have demonstrated at times of your trials and your testings. And you've come out more like Christ than yourself. And you've been a great example and you've built up the body through your example in your life. What a blessing the people of God have been to all of us as staff here at Calvary Chapel, Pasadena. And a great example. And all of this has been due to each person yielding to the head of Christ Jesus, which is the most important perspective. That all of us here look to Jesus Christ, not a man. All of us acknowledge the different gifts and the callings, but it's Christ who we worship and Christ who we give our heart and our ear to. Not one another. We serve one another. We love one another. But we listen only to Christ Jesus and his word. Jesus put it this way. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John thirteen thirty five. And in John fourteen twenty three, he said this. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The love of God and the word of God. Both. And so, the resulting purpose of the gifted man is for proper perspective in relationship to Christ. So, we have looked at these last 
three important purposes of the gifted men. For protection against false teaching, for personal witness seen of truth, and for proper perspective in relationship to Christ. Wow. Every generation, every Christian, every church, no exception. <laughs> There's only one Bible, one head, one body of Christ. Lord, thank you for your grace and your love. We pray, Lord, you deal with our hearts and cause us to be open to the work of your spirit. And thank you for tonight. I pray for every person here, and I pray that you would just... Continue to deal with us, Lord. And Father, if someone does annoy you, you would just bring them to yourself, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. You alone are the only one that can ask Christ to forgive you. If you're over the internet, you can say this prayer right now. This is your repenting prayer to be born again. And Jesus is going to forgive you for all your sins. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.